On today's episode of the Case Law Podcast, we had Kevin Cook from Templeman LLP, and we talked about discoveries. I think you're really going to enjoy it. A lot of people uh, don't know much about discoveries or the process, so I think it sheds a lot of light on what it involves and all the prep going into it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. It is the Case Law Show Podcast, and tonight I have Kevin Cook on from Templeman, and uh Kevin, uh, thanks for being on the podcast again. Uh, I love talking with you and dealing with you on this stuff. And uh, first of all, thanks for being on the podcast tonight. Yeah, I appreciate you having me back, Terry. It's always a pleasure speaking with you on on things that I do every day, but some of your listeners might find interesting. So I'm always happy to help. Well, I understand tonight we're going to talk about slip and falls and uh, preparation for discovery. Yeah, when we were hammering out some some potential ideas of what we could talk about, I always find the examination for discovery process uh, part of the aspects of my job to be uh, to be very interesting and they're always unique and uh, I thought maybe listeners might benefit from me walking them through what that process is and maybe just giving a, a couple of examples and uh, the slip and fall context absolutely well let's uh, let's get right into it so um, let's just take for example um, you've got a person walking on the road or in a parking lot, and they slip and fall on the sidewalk on a person's property uh, in the middle of winter, right? Does that seem feasible? Well, it happens all the time, unfortunately, in, in, in the country we, li- we live in, right? It's, uh, winter, winter events in Canada tend to happen quite frequently. So uh, quite often, people slip and fall. They could fall in uh, parking lots, that belong to the municipal, that are under the control of the municipality. They could fall in, in sidewalks that are right in front of people's businesses. They could fall in in uh, sidewalks in people's driveways. So there's all sorts of different places where people can slip and fall, and that gives rise potentially to some liability. Okay. Well, let's let's just go with a business then, for the purpose of tonight. Let's uh, let's talk about a business. Somebody slips and falls in a. Um, a parking lot that's um, got multiple tenants. Let's try that or talk about that. So you've got like maybe a, a multi-use plaza. How's that? Yeah, that's perfect. So uh, it's a good example. Uh, it happens It happens quite frequently. So mm-hmm. uh, typically what would happen is the the, uh, the owner of the plaza would uh, or, the, or the, uh, the, the corporate entity typically who would have care and control of, of the plaza and was responsible for the winter maintenance of that plaza would would uh, would be responsible for for in, employing some sort of winter maintenance system, and uh, typically what would happen is uh, if, a, if an individual falls, then they would consult a plaintiff personal injury lawyer. We've we've dealt with uh, a number on our show. Yeah, and uh, and they would seek out the the corporate identity of, of, of the owner of that plaza and likely bring a, a statement of claim if they felt that there was uh, sufficient injuries that would, would warrant that. Okay. Now, what about the fact that it might be uh, one where they're on the sidewalk in front of a particular store in the plaza? Um, do things like the lease agreement come into play there, or is it typically they're just going to name everybody in the plaza? They're naming one person, they're naming the store that it happened in front of, or the landlord, or how does that all come into, you know, how does that all work itself out? Well, I, I, I can't speak for, and, and I think most of your listeners who listened to me before would know uh, that I practice on the defense side. So I can't speak to, to what uh, every personal plaintiff personal injury lawyer would do. 
but uh, sometimes you do get the, the mud at the wall approach where they name um, perhaps the, the exact business where the fall uh, occurred. They might name um, the uh, owner or the corporate entity who, who owns the plaza. Uh, they might be able to do some some research into who performs the winter maintenance for that corporate entity and name that company. So sometimes there are uh, quite a bit of uh, quite a number of, of of parties who are named in an action. Sometimes there's there's less, and then they uh, less less parties, and they get brought in later on. So um, it's typically something that's discovered uh, as we you proceed through the the litigation is who's actually liable and who how that liability will be split. Okay. Now, um, do you, when as a defense lawyer, before you even get to discoveries, you're you've got the adjuster and the examiner and maybe an IA or somebody out on the road does their photos, does their video, goes out, looks at lot maintenance and all that stuff. You get that all into you. Um, you review the file, and then you make determinations on the defense at that point, or or what are you doing? Well, I think it's it's. When I get a file from uh, from an adjuster, it's usually uh, a process of review. There's a lot, usually several pictures taken, some uh, some understanding. There's an investigation that's been conducted, right? So I'm trying to look at it from a, a 500 foot view, seeing everything, seeing all the different aspects of the uh, of, of the potential liability. Usually, there's some commentary on on the injuries and the, the potential damages as well. Uh, but there's all these uh, there's all these Different different factors that you try to take into account when you provide just an initial assessment of, of liability when you're looking at these types of claims. But uh, certainly, as as a file is assigned to me, it's important to uh, take all these different considerations into account. Fall location is also very critical in these in these types of uh, scenarios. Again, if you're talking about um, a, a plaza, in the example you've given, it's it's uh, who has control of the. Uh, of, of the exact location where the where the fall happened and who was responsible for the motor maintenance. You raised lease agreements earlier, and the question you mentioned to me earlier, I don't think I got to that, but yeah, lease agreements can also set out responsibilities for winter maintenance. Uh, and this is all sort of, in, in the scenario you've set out for me, it's all, it's all covered under the Occupier's Liability Act, right? So yep. it's, it's an obligation to, to have the, uh, uh, invite people into the, uh, members of the public into your, into your, uh, place of business uh, and making sure it's safe and, uh, and, uh, and in, a, in, a, in a state that uh, would be reasonably expected to be safe. So these are things that you're looking at uh, when, you're, when you're doing that initial assessment is, is there a lease? What does the lease say? Is there a contract for winter maintenance services to be provided? We're always looking at potential subcontractors and who might else uh, who might else? Who else might have some responsibility? There's all these different factors that we're looking in, and and typically, uh, the more information and the more uh, that's gone into the investigation from a preliminary perspective, before it gets into the hands of the defense lawyer, the better it is. Now, I always know, or I know that we always look at it from a standard of care on the defense side. But what about a standard of care before we even talk about the discovery from the plaintiff side? Like we all know we live in a, a country that has four seasons. So we know that winter's here. I mean, I've seen people out in heels and running shoes and all sorts of things. I mean, like inappropriately dressed in the winter. Um, you know, does that come into factor here? Do we look at that down the road? I know we're going to look at it down the road, but do you, do you look at that in your 500 foot view as well? At the beginning, 
it's always something to consider, right? I mean, when I look at a when I look at a file from from the initial the initial assessment standpoint, before when I'm getting ready to, to uh, prepare a statement of defense, uh, it's certainly something that I'm looking at. And typically, what you'll see a lot of your your listeners might see in statements of defense is uh, blanket pleadings. And what I what I say when I mean that uh, is I might put a line in that says the plaintiff was. Um, under the influence of alcohol or drugs, uh, was wearing inappropriate uh, footwear at the, at the material times. And I'm, there's there's several lines you might throw in there. And the reason why you put them into the, your statement of defense is because these are situations that you might not be aware of, but they might become more uh, more evident when you when you go through the litigation and, and get to the examinations for discovery, and you you ask questions to the plaintiff about the circumstances of, of the slip and fall. So these are things that you're trying to look at, and if the information is available for, for the defense lawyer at the initial assessment, sure, certainly they can uh, make some sort of commentary on uh, potential liability splits. And I, and I mean, uh, when I say that, I mean uh, attributing some liability to the person who fell, right, some contributory negligence. Sure. But uh, sometimes, oftentimes those things come out, they're not readily available when you do that initial assessment. They come out uh, over time as you, as you do some more invest. Sometimes they're, they're talked about in the clinical notes. Sometimes they come out of the examinations for discovery. And, and those are just for the people listening. Those are why you also find them in the plaintiff's claim as well. You know, the person taking care of the maintenance may have been under the influence of alcohol or his vehicle wasn't properly working. Those are, again, boilerplate that's put in there at the beginning that they'll be fleshed out later on. Yeah, and it's just a matter of, of, of both the plaintiff's side, but also the defense side, just throwing the mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. And, and really, you don't know the particular circumstances, but you want to keep, you want to plead it just in case it actually uh, comes to bear. Yeah, okay. So um, now we let's jump ahead. We've gotten all that documentation. You're getting ready to do a discovery. Um, is there certain things you like to prep for in, in advance of discovery? And, you know, these are the things adjusters should know that you need in your file or that you need from them or kind of give me the, the lowdown on that. Well, yeah, certainly. So the examination for discovery is really, it's, it's part of the second step of the, of the, of the litigation process. I always explain to, to um, business owners who I represent about the process of, of the litigation because oftentimes Hopefully, they're not repeat customers. And when I say that, I mean, if they've had a sleep and fall before, hopefully this is, that's the only one they've ever had, and they don't get sued often, sure. <laughs> as a matter of course. Yeah. So I, I typically walk them through the three-step process, right? The first step is, is the pleading stage, which is the statement of claim being issued, and it's followed up by a statement of defense. Usually, uh, there will be at least some sort of investigation to whether some cross-claims or counter-claims want to be issued against different parties. Uh, but that's once that is wrapped up, it moves to the second stage, which is the discovery stage, right? So there's two steps to to that aspect of the of the of the litigation. The first is documentary discovery, and a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with the types of documents that we like to see from the defense perspective on these types of files, right? The uh, the robust winter maintenance. Uh, records that show very consistent attendances to the areas that they're supposed to be uh, treating, uh, shoveling and, and applying some sort of vice melt or uh, what have you to, to make the, the, the uh, location safer for the access of the public. So those, are, those documents are usually exchanged. And then what happens is 
the, an examination for discovery, and we move to a, a situation where the lawyer from from each side gets to question the opposite side, and uh, a transcript's produced, and that's where we get the evidence. So as we move to the third stage, which is the pretrial and eventually the trial, and obviously there's the possibility to have mediations somewhere in there, uh, the evidence of, of really what's argued at trial, um, at least from the parties, is going to be coming from that examination for discovery uh, phase of the of the uh, of the litigation. Now, I've heard sometimes people like to do mediation, then discovery, and then other times I hear discovery, then mediation. What's right. your preference? It's it's really fact-specific. So there's there's different factors that are taken into account sometimes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't really speculate uh, as to, to what, what particular clients like versus what others, uh, and, and really go into that. But I, I can't say that there's just strategic reasons why you might want to consider a, a quick mediation. Yeah. And uh, that's not the typical course of action. Though usually it's it's proceeding to discoveries, and then after that, at least giving a mediation a try before uh, proceeding to uh, the next stage, which, which would be a pretrial. So there's different considerations. Sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, I would expect I would ex- expect most most plaintiff side uh, lawyers would would be quite contented to go to go and try to go go to a mediation early and try and resolve it quickly, um, but and not have to put their client through the process. But sometimes that that's necessary. As I have had uh, situations in the past where I've suggested early mediation and it's not been uh, responded to well, and then we go to discoveries, and that's fine. Um, but usually it's the defense side that will request it, and uh, it's it's so fact specific that that uh, I, ca- I can't really comment on on certain situations that that would give rise to that. But every, there's always reasons, and usually they're explained well <laughs> between the the, uh, the adjusters and the uh, and the lawyers as they as they consider their options. Sure, and I mean <clears throat> it, it depends. I guess if it's a sprain or a strain as opposed to a head injury, or you know. Uh, an objective or subjective injury as well, correct? Yeah, I think those things, uh, those aspects certainly uh, play play a part. Okay. Certainly, um, sometimes it's uh, just quantum of the claim too. If, it, if people see it as a as a minor claim, it might be something that you know maybe it's not worth the uh, the uh, the time and expense to, to go through discoveries. If you think that you can get to a reasonable settlement uh, rather rather quickly, those are other other considerations as well. Sure. Sure. So let's talk about the discovery itself. I mean, um, discovery prep for the client. Um, let, let's talk about the client themselves as opposed to the adjuster. I mean, we can talk about the adjuster being discovered as well or, or an underwriter. Yeah. Or, or, but let's, let's talk about the actual client. Um, do you guys spend a lot of time on the discovery prep with a client? So what, my practice is this, is that I like to... I like to have a meeting uh, initially, right after that statement of defense is is submitted, because I, I think it's it's always worthwhile meeting with people uh, who have using the, the slip and fall example, who have a story to tell. Right? The, yeah. Certainly, the plaintiff has a story to tell, but I'd like to hear their perspective of things. And I'm I'm doing a few things. I'm I'm further investigating the case because you know I can rely on adjusters' reports, but I think meeting meeting these people also helps helps uh, understand the situation as well. But I'm also judging how I, I expect they'd hold up to some questioning uh, 
in the, in the examination for discovery context, whether I think they'll struggle with it, whether I find them uh, defensive. You don't really want to put someone, uh, you want to work with someone quite a bit if you think they're going to be too too defensive in that kind of context, right? So I'm a, uh, it's, it's not so much that I'm examining credibility, so to speak. Yeah. Um, credibility is obviously a key aspect of examinations for discovery, but I'm just trying to think, get a sense of how I think they'll present. And then, of course, of doing some... Uh, some case assessment and, and strategizing as well in that in that initial meeting. At that point, I'll probably make a report to my client. But um, based on that meeting, I'll I'll set up how I want to prepare for the discovery. But someone who I think is confident in their records and knows what they're talking about, um, I'll probably spend a little less time with them. I'll, but if it's someone who I think might need a little extra care and attention, um, I think it's well worth uh, the cost of, of doing maybe one or two preparation sessions with them just to make sure they're ready and familiar and uh, know what to expect when the process comes because it's it's something I always tell them. Uh, it's, I think I say it to almost every person I prepare for a discovery. I do this, every, I don't do it every day, but I do it more. I've done a, quite a number <laughs> of discoveries, right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's not a big deal for me, but uh, most people don't get, uh, suggested to examinations for discovery um, ever, let alone once or twice, right? So uh, it's not something that's going to be normal for them. And uh, I have, you always have to take that approach when you're, when you're helping out someone uh, defend a claim. Okay. And so if you kind of take them through the process, do you tell them that, you know, you, you know, not that you're going to be guiding them, but as far as their their answers, like, should they, you know, should they be aware that how to answer for those kind of, for those kind of things? Well, well, I mean, the evidence at the end of the day is going to be the evidence. The only thing that I can emphasize is, is being truthful and being uh, forthright and, and being credible, right? Because the same way I'm examining the credibility and assessing the cred- credibility of the plaintiff when I examine them, uh, the same thing's happening uh, on the other side, right? So um, ultimately, I, I'm going to make a, a draft and discovery report, and it's going to talk about what I think about the credibility of both witnesses, including my own. Yeah. So so uh, what I always tell people is, is just stick to the truth, uh, answer the questions that are asked, and that's all we can do, right? So um, there's different ways to prepare for different, different files, but... Uh, those are the, the two hallmarks. And then there's, there's other procedural things too, right? Like, like just uh, logistical things about preparing for examinations for discovery, like answering um, audibly, right? People have a tendency when they're, when they're having conversations with people to either nod their head yes or, or shake their head no, and that doesn't get picked up in the transcript. So we walk through the process like that. We, there's also a tendency a lot of times for, uh, for people to um, anticipate questions and interrupt um, and those don't, uh, that doesn't really help when you're doing these, these types of uh, uh, examinations for discovery because the transcripts being produced. So my, my usual mantra is it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we always want to work to get you out as fast as we can, but um, <laughs> it's not going to help if you give bad evidence because you'll just, You'll just stay there as long as longer, and they'll explore it for longer, and it's all going to be relevant if it's if it's something that uh, that uh, that that helps the plaintiff's case. So um, be be focused on the uh, on on the questions, and there's always a tendency to 
become a little nonchalant. So certainly the 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 first three or four minutes of a discovery might be very maybe very nerve wracking for a witness, but uh, quite often what lawyers are trying to do is just be calm and collected and 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 have a conversation with the other side. And sometimes there's a tendency to let your guard down a bit. So it's important to always keep your guard up and and uh, and know that you're in the very formal process of giving legal evidence. So um, to be care to be wary of that. Yeah, I was going to speak to that, and the reason I'm I'm going to talk about that is, uh, I find that sometimes the person, if they're not savvy to a discovery or a mediation, or just the process, they tend to overshare and provide more information that's even being asked. Would you? Right. I mean, like they're they're trying to fill dead air. Is you know, I I I get that when I'm taking statements from people. They don't like the silence, so they just continue to talk. And sometimes they say things that they probably shouldn't. Well, that that is, I, I don't mind sharing it because <laughs> because uh, if, if we do get plaintiff side lawyers, so I I go up against, uh, they might tell their client client this, but it doesn't really help. Is that I I actually do things uh, a little old school. I take handwritten notes in my discoveries, and I do it strategically because uh, sometimes if I ask a question. And I write down the answers. A lot of times, what you'll see with with some lawyers is they'll type out the the, the answer verbatim. Um, and the reason being is that they're, they're preparing a report afterwards, and uh, discovery transcripts are quite expensive, so we, we don't always order them. Um, and it's just a way of, of recording the evidence in real time. I do that, but what I do it is I I, I handwrite my notes. And when I do that, I tend to take a tick longer than someone who's typing out notes, right? And it's a little less transactional too, right? I mean, it's just answer question, question, answer, question, answer, and and you're just typing out the answers. But I I handwrite because I like to leave that little extra bit of silence. You can't really hear the pencil, the pen, or the pencil the way you can the the clicking of the of the computer. Yeah. And yeah, and then and there is that tendency to. I'm quite comfortable with the silence because I'm writing down what they're saying, and oftentimes they'll uh the the, the witness might uh, might offer a little more than they want so it's something that you have to you have to prepare the witness for answer the questions that at that's asked um it, i think it's human nature to try to be helpful especially if you in the context of let's first let's use the example again that you're representing a business owner who's who's been accused of of, uh, of not having a proper winter maintenance system in place the, 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 i mean I would, we'd be hard pressed to find someone who wanted to see someone fall, right? So they're they're trying their best to be, uh, to be honest and forthright and explain the the types of steps that they use to make sure the public is safe, and they want to be helpful. And sometimes answering questions that aren't asked uh, is is the exact opposite of, of of helpful to their case. So it's always important to focus on on offering the answers to the questions that are asked. I cringe sometimes when I'm sitting in on a discovery. Or I'm reading a discovery transcript and I'm like, oh my God, they've just said so much stuff that was totally not asked for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been in where I'm taking a statement from someone and the plaintiff lawyer just sits up. Sometimes they're sitting back, relaxed, very comfortable. And then they sit up and they're like, whoa, whoa, stop. We're done. That's not, that wasn't asked for. And uh, it, it, you know, so I'm, I'm always cognizant um, of that now. I wasn't as much in my early days, but I, I really, I see that so much in, uh, well, I, in these things. 
and it's tricky too, right, for 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 lawyers because we have a professional obligation. I mean, these discoveries don't take place over the course of twenty minutes, right? They take the course over the place of several hours. Yeah, and we we have a professional obligation once. Uh, if there's breaks, um, we're interacting with our, our clients usually, but we we have we cannot discuss the evidence while there's a, a, an examination for discovery that's ongoing. Uh, so uh, uh, you, you have to watch out, but you know you are able to sort of reiterate certain um, certain aspects of the of, of the prep, right? So yep. you know just make sure you stay calm, only answer the questions you're asked. You can say that because you're not talking about the evidence. You're asking, you're talking about how you're, they're delivering it, right? Yeah. But you know, in in those types of situations, it's always it's always good to if you have a client that's oversharing to to try and find a, a natural break in the discovery, ask for a break, and reiterate that point as opposed to saying you can say it at the end, right? But sure. I, yeah, you always want to be careful in the middle of the discovery to just reiterate answer the questions that are asked only answer those questions right yep so, absolutely yeah, yeah I, I mean um, so you you've got that from the claimant or the your client do you take them through um, their documentation as well or or do you let that come out um, I mean not that you're discovering your own client but do you do you take them through that information in advance saying hey you know this might be problematic from you? Um, or, you know, if they're missing some stuff or, or if they have good records to say, Hey, you know what, these are great records that like, how do you, how do you deal with the evidence itself that's going to be presented? Anticipating questions is absolutely critical, right? So, um, walking through what you think anticipated questions, putting them through mock discoveries, I think is always uh, a a worthwhile, um, course of course of action. So you'll do Uh, that. Yeah, especially with 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 uh, in situations where I get the sense that the witness might not be as comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, you can explain it. But sometimes putting them through the process of doing a mock discovery might help. And I'm not I'm not saying I do a full two hour mock discovery. You know, spend twenty minutes giving the types of questions and point out where they're offering a little more than than what I asked for, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes there's a yes or no questions, and and the whole explanation is offered, right? And then, and I'll stop them, and I'll say, as we prep, not obviously during the middle of the discovery, but I'll stop as we prepare, and say, that was a great answer, excellent answer, not the, the answer to the question I asked, but yeah. a, a good answer if you can get it out, <laughs> it's natural. Uh, so yeah, I, I do that. I mean, you have to go through the records, right? I mean, obviously, the records are what they are; they don't change, they can't be changed. So um, you can, they're going to have to speak to them at some point, and um, going through them in advance will certainly allow them, the witness to, to turn their mind to what they're they're saying, and they're, they're, what they're what they're going to be saying at the discovery, and uh, allow them to think about how they they would like to to respond to some of the the, the questions about the records. So, uh, yeah, going through going through the documents and. And uh, and doing mock discoveries, I think, is, is a crucial part of, of preparing. Yeah, I always I, I always like, and I like sitting in on that part as well, so I actually have an idea of what's going on or what's going to be said um, if I can't attend the discovery itself. Um, now, let, let's talk about um, municipal. Um, you, I'm sure you deal with municipal a lot there's a lot of rules around um first of all 
putting a municipality on notice, right? There's timing, right? There's certain they have yeah, different yeah. rules with that. Yeah. So the the situation we were describing before um, relates to the Occupiers Liability Act, and there's different different uh, expectations and there's different law with respect to municipalities and falling on municipal sidewalks, for example, if we're going to keep keep using the slip and fall example. Um, and those, those are all governed by the, the Municipal Act. So there are, yeah, there's, as you, you flagged, there's, there's certain notice requirements. You have to put the city on notice um, about any potential um, hazardous situations, uh, give them the opportunity to inspect, things like that. And, and do you think... Um... Uh, now the courts vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but do you find that um, they do attribute some negligence to the client or the claimant, I should say, um, because it's winter? And, you know, like if you've done everything you can within your power and, mm -hmm. you know, it's just winter, right? People are going to slip. They're going to fall regardless. I mean, they slip and I've seen people slip and fall in, in perfect weather. Right. Uh, it's It's... It's fact specific. I, I, I mean, as as a as a defense lawyer, I, I represent municipalities and I represent uh, businesses. Uh, there's always there's always something that you're trying to find in the, that'll allege some contribution by the by the plaintiff, whether it's the uh, the, the the attire they're wearing, the shoes they're wearing, um, their familiarity with the route. Their their mind frame at the time. Were they looking at their cell phone? Um, they, there's all all different ways that you can that you can point these these types of issues out. And uh, typically, typically we'll find that that there there will be some measure or some some thought process um, gone through by plaintiff lawyers as they as they turn their minds to potentially settling that they might need to take into account some, some contribution, some contribution on the part of their, of their client as well. So um, it's, it's not a matter of course, that there's always liability to be found with the, the plaintiff or some, some contribution by the plaintiff, but um, it's certainly something that, that defense lawyers are always looking at okay. and, and trying to, uh, and, and try to, to weed out and see if there's any, any, any aspect of the, of the fall that, um, be attributed to the plaintiff themselves. What about surveillance? What about in the case where you have surveillance as well? Well, surveillance is certainly helpful, but that that speaks more to no. Uh, and I don't mean surveillance of the client after the fact. What I mean is there's video of the actual fall in the area. Right. How do you how do you deal with that um, in the discovery process um, on slip and falls? Is it just brought in the same way? Well, I, I think that really is, is again, everything. I, I hate to sound like a broken record. It's, it's fact-specific, right? But I think what my my practice is is that I like to, if there is surveillance, if there is video of the fall, I like to, to go through it, observe it, um, and look at statements that have been given, certainly uh, to adjusters uh, previous, prior to the litigation starting, but also... Uh, I like to talk to my clients about about how we want to approach it, because uh, really what we want is is the plaintiff's evidence uh, about what their recollection of the fall is, right? And to have a gotcha moment like that in the in the discovery is not necessarily 
um, the most effective. What you want to be looking at is the video and comparing it to what their evidence is and seeing if it matches up. So you're not going to so, use it really to impeach them then, for lack of a better yeah. word, right? It's not really the goal. That's not really what you're trying to do at that stage, right? Eventually you might want to. So but, would you let uh, the def- the plaintiff lawyer know that there is vid- video available? Or is that well, something you have to do early well, there's, on? There's, there's an obligation to disclose all, all documentation, whether it's, uh, whether it's producible or not is, is a different story. So um, doubling back to what I was talking about earlier about the documentary production, what, what happens before you go to discoveries is documentation is produced. So we've talked about records, right? Those, those records are produced before I get to uh, conduct an examination for discovery or, 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 or vice versa. The plaintiff's lawyer gets to conduct an examination for discovery of the business owner. But there's also situations where um, surveillance after the fact uh, is, is the best example, where it might be listed in, uh, in Schedule B, which is uh, all, all producible documents are listed in what we call the Schedule A and some, some documents that you're, you're holding back because of certain privilege uh, are, are identified, they exist in Schedule B, uh, but they're not produced, and you explain the, the basis for not producing them. So that becomes, that becomes uh, an, another conversation, a strategic conversation that you want to have between adjuster and, and lawyer is where do we, do we produce these from the outset and, and, uh, and disclose, the, disclose them to the other side in our Schedule A productions, or do we claim privilege over them for some reason or another and hold them back? And that, that becomes a, uh, a strategic question. So there's there's a lot more that goes into discovery than just hey let's set up a meeting we're going to take information from both of you. So the, what the listeners should take from this tonight is there's a lot that goes into discovery, correct? There's a lot yes. of prep. There's a lot of reviewing. Um, I mean, I I know people sometimes kind of balk at the cost of a discovery and all the preparation going into it, but if you've got an objective injury. Um, you know, with, you know, maybe a broken leg or a broken arm or some, you know, some real sub- objective injuries, um, they need to let you take the time to actually do everything right. You'd, right? I, absolutely. And, and, and what I highlighted earlier was that this is the opportunity to get, to get evidence that might be used at a mediation, but also a pretrial and eventually a trial. And this is the opportunity to get it. And effective discoveries are critical to defending a case. So the better prepared the lawyer is, the better prepared the witnesses are. Yeah. The the better the better defense you're going to be able to mount. And, and that's why I talked about assessing assessing the witnesses from the, from an early stage, right? Almost from from the the, the time I, I typically will go and meet these, these, these witnesses after I, I file a statement of defense because I want to get meet them right up, right at the outset, get an understanding of what kind of credibility they're going to have, how they're going to present as a witness because it's that critical. Yeah, and, and I, I, again, um, I can only speak to the ones that I've been involved in and, and gone to. I mean, I, uh, and I've, I've even been discovered as well as uh, the adjuster on a file and that and the investigator and stuff in in those situations and i find that you know sitting down with counsel in advance and and really looking at all the different aspects of things is and, and having a really good game plan 
usually works out better than saying, hey, we'll talk 30 minutes before the discovery. And I've seen that too. I've heard that from other counsel. Like, yeah, you know, I met with my client for like 30 minutes beforehand. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. I hear it more often than I'd, than I'd like to, to admit. And it's, it's not obviously for me. It's not, it's not how I practice. But um, I, I've, I've heard it from other people that I know who practice in, in law and who go to discoveries frequently. And, and oftentimes I find it's, it's, it's a volume thing. It's, it's because they, they, they don't have the time to put in the advance work. I, I, I can't speak to every situation. Sure. No, no. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that's something that you guys yeah. are involved in, but I'm just saying I've heard yeah. and seen that, and I think it's frightening. It's playing with, it's playing with fire. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I was like – I was really taken aback. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you met with your client literally 30 minutes before we started this. And, well, uh, I, I, it begs the question, right, because – if you make that assessment about 15, 20 minutes into that that 30 minute <laughs> preparation session that's happening right before the discovery, and it comes to bear that they're they're not going to present well, I mean you're stuck. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how do you get around that? I mean, and I'm not asking you. I'm just saying um, rhetorically. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you get around that? It just becomes such a problem. I mean. Uh, yeah, I've, I've sat at the table, uh, on mediations too. And I'm like, you're asking, and they seem almost like they've never heard the answer before, which makes me think they haven't heard that answer because they've never had that discussion. And you're just, what? yeah, you're sometimes, I'm sometimes just floored at, uh, the line I like to use when I, the line I like to use in my reports when, uh, when I, when I have situations exactly like the one you're describing is. Um, I, I say something, and I'm paraphrasing usually uh, about what I say, but it's, it's something like it was a discovery for everyone in the room. Everyone was discovering new things, <laughs> you know, at the time. So yeah, uh, yeah, and I mean that's that's always interesting. It's it's really it, it's I find it mind-boggling. Now reports. Um, let's talk about these slip and fall reports. Um, well, not the slip and fall report, but. Um, do you like to see standardized forms uh, for maintenance contractors and those kind of things? As far as you know, I had, like the day of the week they attended, those kind of things. Like, what would you like to see as a lawyer? What would be your best evidence uh, that you could put forward? The more detail, the better. Uh, the more detail that you have, uh, the easier it is to defend. And, and the, there's always you, you, you can't make up the the, the detail that, that goes into to exceptionally detailed documentation afterwards right so um it, it, it's just it's absolutely critical to to, to successfully defending an occupier's liability act claim when it comes to flips flip and falls um i mean i've i defended them where the evidence of, of the winter maintenance program is the receipts from home hardware with with all the bags of salt they purchased right so, wow yeah that's the that's the, the lower end of the scale and it's like well all right but i'll do my best if this is all you're giving giving me but um and then you have the opposite end of the spectrum which is you know day of the week time time out time in uh how many steps people taken yeah yeah who did it initialed i mean the more detail that you can add the easier to 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 depend, right? So, yeah, I've seen the be, ones with the daily logs, and I mean, it's attended even when they just do a drive by. So attended today, um, sidewalks were clear and clean, uh, no frost, temperature is plus four, 
Um, yeah, you know, temperature's great. Temperature's an excellent, uh, an excellent thing to do, right? Because there's always the potential of freeze thaw. That's another another thing we we had to deal with quite a bit. If you're in in a situation where you know there's 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 flurries and it's above zero, and then it goes below, it's obviously right for uh, a condition where ice might form. So in those types of situations, if if I can if I can look at the the weather records and say, okay, well it was minus 13 throughout and there was winter maintenance performed in the morning and and there was no flurries overnight and you know it just make, it makes it easier to make the argument right yeah absolutely i mean i love the great those logs are the ones that are are completely computerized so they they come off the machine itself so their vehicle as soon as the vehicle starts rolling it starts recording so it tells right. you how much salt sand mix they put down on the or brine or whatever it is uh, whatever you know, application they're applying, and it tells you even the route that they took for those ones that are out on the roads and stuff or parking lots. It tells you, you know, GPS identified. It's some of them are really, really sophisticated, and then the other ones that are just handwritten. You know, if it's done well, it's good. Right. No. Yeah. It's uh, you. You can't. You can't put. You can't put. Uh, too much effort into it. I, I the the only opposite the only thing is, is that that really impacts the the defense of the claim is, is the opposite when absolutely no effort is put in because it just becomes such a difficult situation to to, to mount an effective defense. So uh, the stronger those records are, the better the better uh, the better chance you have of, of successfully defending the claim. And I usually make the joke when I when I see when I see business owners in particular. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to see you again. Hopefully, this is the only interaction we have, and your know, records are are pristine uh, from from now on. Because um, if they are, you'll you'll be in a much better position to respond in the future. Yeah, and I mean, I would love it if, and and maybe this is a shout out to brokers and uh, people on the front line uh, that are writing policies. You know, agents, brokers, whatever. Um, that they actually prepare a package for guys that do winter maintenance and summer maintenance that, you know, these are the logs that you guys should be using, have prepared logs for them. So there's something that they, you know, they can actually see and, uh, and kind of use as a template that would be, you know, perfect for these types of events. So, you know, it's, it's there for you, right? Yeah, it, it would be an effective, uh, effective way of, of of preparing people for these types of situations because they're going to arise. If you're a business owner and, and you're inviting members of the public into your business, uh, there's going to be that obligation. And, and if you're not prepared with, with, with an effective template, then it, it doesn't have to be the same template. <laughs> I mean, every, everyone will do different things and the level of dedication that, that certain pe- people will, will, will devote to it as opposed to others is, is certainly going to be different as well. And a lot of times you you have to look at it as well, right? I mean, typically these 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 owners, the business owners, are are entrusting staff members, employees, to be doing this work, right? It's not necessarily them. So preparing and training your staff and, and the the types of steps that they need to be taken and emphasizing the importance of it, right? I mean, yeah, it, it's it's tough sometimes, but to, to you're entrusting them with with. <laughs> With both the safety of the public and the patrons and who might be accessing the business, but also, you know, potential liability that, that you might be exposed to as a business owner as well. Yeah, and I think it's different between mom and pop stores and um, large conglomerates too, right? Like your, um, I, 
and I'm just throwing names out here, like smart centers and Walmarts and big box stores, as opposed to your local variety store or small little strip mall that's, you know, this guy is, has one little mall and he's subbed out the work to, you know, a friend that's got a snowplow and uh, a snowblower and a couple of shovels. I think right. that's, I see the difference between those where the, you know, the contractor has these yearly contracts and it talks about, you know, as of November, you'll have X number of machines on our property waiting for a snowfall. There's going to be sandboxes there. There's a, you know, an inspection process that's in place. And those are the ones that really, I find when I get them, I look at them and I go, okay, well, this is great because, I mean, your records are impeccable. They're all prepared. They're, they're noted. They're dated. They're timed. I can see who was there on what date as opposed to the other guy that pulls something out of a, a you know, off of his desk and it's scrunched up paper, like you said, with a few receipts for some ice snow melt and a shovel. Right. <laughs> it makes it very hard. It makes my job very hard. Yeah. How do you defend that, right? I mean... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, what's the takeaways we should get from this discovery process? What, what, what do you think um, are the key takeaways for this discovery process when you're dealing with this as an adjuster? General, uh, generally, the takeaways are, are preparation is key, right? Is, is, is take the process seriously, prepare, know your documents, know your evidence, and uh, don't underestimate the process because the, it, it's critical to the, to the proper defense of the claim. And uh, the better discovery you have and the more prepared the witness is, the better uh, a chance you have to mount an effective defense. Well, we're heading into the winter season soon. I hate to say it, but it is going to be winter soon enough. I mean, the guy that I deal with for my tires sent me a text today saying, hey, man, you better send a, you know, uh, get ready to um, – book your time for your tire changeover. And I said, man, it's only September. He goes, we're already taking times into November now. <laughs> so, you know, it's starting to frighten me that the snow's coming quicker than I, I want it to because it wasn't that long of a summer this year, especially with COVID. Um, so, I mean, how do they get in touch with you? Because they're going to need to reach you, Kevin, to get their defense and get prepared. And you're local to Eastern Ontario. So how do they reach you to get this all? Um, and get these claims prepared and ready. Well, well, the, ni- the nice thing about uh, about the COVID era is that um, we're learning that even though I am based in East Ontario, I, I, I can conduct examinations for discovery and defend claims effectively all over the province. So it's not necessarily uh, limited to that. But yep. um, if there's any adjusters out there who are looking for um, defense work or defense lawyers, um, by all means, contact me. I uh, Kevin Cook, I'm reached at 613-542-1889, and I, and I work for Templeman LLP, and I'm online as well. So it's uh, something I've been doing for quite a while now, and um, always looking for, for new adjusters, new uh, new people who, who might be your own listeners. So uh, reach out, send me an email, I'm always uh, make myself available. And Kevin, email, is it Cook with an E on the end or without? Yes, I know it's very it is. important. Very important <laughs> to have the yeah, K C O O K E at tmlegal.ca. That's T uh, Templeman and M uh, like my middle name Michael uh, Legal and the word Legal. So tmlegal.ca. 
Perfect. Well, thanks again for being on the show tonight. I think our listeners got a lot out of it. I know I did. I always enjoy talking to you about defense stuff. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't have your counterpart, uh, John Russell from uh, Die Russell on to talk about the plaintiff side, but we'll get you guys back together for uh, the next episode and, uh, and we'll talk about some other stuff. And uh, it's always great to have you and I do appreciate it. I probably wouldn't have been so forthcoming if John was on the uh, on the on the podcast with me. But <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Terry, and uh, I hope your listeners got something out of it. And I look forward to joining you again sometime. Oh, absolutely! We'll talk soon. Thanks again, and uh, have a great night. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to today's episode of the Case Law Podcast. It was great, and I really appreciate Kevin coming on. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.